The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? It's the eye of the storm where it's calm and you can look around and see, wait, they're just all acting out generation after generation, all of this pain. So whenever humans fell into history thousands of years ago and and doing violence to one another, it kind of has gotten so far out of hand and the the violence and retribution and blame, really, and grievance. We're we're living in this, uh, I read an article last night where with Trump and everything, we're addicted to grievance. He's really just doing what we all do. And so to be resentful at our parents and wait for some kind of apology that's never going to happen, it's useless and unnecessary and misses the point. We all suffer from varying degrees of the exact same pain and we need to stop it. And we need to understand that those experiences like you opened up saying, Alexis, that they deepen our own sense of compassion so that we can you know, we'll hopefully have compassion for our parents, stop blaming them, but Mm -hmm. most importantly, in our work. Hi, happy Monday. It's the first Monday of the month, which means that it is a Q&A episode. Time to gather around. No, I'm just kidding. It's definitely time to up level in our lives, which is why I love getting your guys' questions answered. And I know that most people end up having huge takeaways from these episodes. So I'm so happy to be doing them. A couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first one is that... RFR merch is up and available right now and it's a great way to support the show and I really, really appreciate every single order and every single person that shares with me them drinking out of their Alexis Nyers crying face mug. I live for it. So do me a fave. If you want a sweatshirt, go on over there and get one. I have a surprise guest and it is the one and only Evan Haynes. So Evan Evan and I are (laughs) here to answer your questions. All right. So what do you have for me today, Marissa? I mean, this is kind of off topic from addiction, Mm -hmm. but um, this is something that definitely you, I believe, will have some kind of insight into. Um, I've recently started, well, really gotten into, I've always done it, but really committed to it in recent months. Um, my daily meditations, uh, guided meditations, repeating back affirmations, speaking into existence, things that I want to see in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, because my life is kind of like, um, crumbling all around me right now, Mm -hmm. uh, We've, I had COVID back in May and in July, and because of that, my husband was not able to work. And ever since then, we've been struggling financially, mm. and our rent's always late. Um, it's like one thing after another. We'll get above water, and then we're sinking again. Mm-hmm. And um, now we were actually served with 
eviction papers from a constable two weeks ago and our court hearings on Wednesday. Mm. We've been trying to figure something out for the past two weeks and it's not looking like anything's going to get figured out. And I'm like, holy crap, am I inadvertently manifesting this? Mm. (laughs) Because it's been like a shit show for the past few weeks. And I'm like, wait, what, what am I doing? And so now I'm like, I'm all about synchronicities too. If I see like 11, 11, mm-hmm. always, if I see it, I manifest, I mm-hmm. speak, speak into existence. Now I'm like, I don't want to lose my home. Yes. If you're and, listening to the universe. <laughs> and according to Abraham Hicks and the law of attraction, if you're saying, I don't want this, you're calling more into that. First and foremost though, Marissa, oh. I just want to say that oh. this isn't your fault. This is in this, you know, it breaks my heart because it's not just you. I'm seeing in my mom's groups, moms who have been evicted, who have nowhere to go. And they're asking other moms in the, in the mom's group, if they can park in their driveways to sleep with their kids in the car. I mean, what we're experiencing on a global level right now is something that is truly heartbreaking and yeah, not at You're all. Make me cry right now, <laughs> and it's okay to cry. Not you. It, it, no. I have two daughters also. Yeah, it and it, it's okay. It's okay to cry, and it's okay. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to feel all of the things that you're feeling right now. And so, I would say that this is absolutely not your fault. There is a lot going on right now on this planet, and major mm-hmm. shifts happening, and. What you're experiencing is absolutely heartbreaking and it and it, and you're not alone and it shouldn't be happening. And I think yeah, oftentimes no, I I... when it comes to spirituality, everyone's like, well, can I just think or say this out of my existence? And some spiritual practitioners would say yes. And my answer is no, sometimes we can't. I mean, I look at all of the tragedy, Marissa, that I experienced the sexual abuse and I and, and violence that happened in my household and all of the tragedy that I experienced throughout my oh, wow. um, my life. And I would the easy thing to say would be like, well, why? Why did this happen to me? Right. Like, why am I experiencing it? Mm-hmm. I know ultimately it was always for my greatest good that that hardship ended up breaking me open and becoming the person I am today who has so much empathy for other people and who really um, has become this healer as a result of, of the pain. And I know that that doesn't reduce your pain. That's just my experience. And then as far as um, when you're talking, I understand that I've been through a lot in my life and I'm completely like, I understand exactly what you're saying. I, I do. I've, I can, I can relate to a lot of what you've been through as well. Mm. I do understand that. So, And so Marissa, what I, just, I would say is that like, I think affirmations are great. I think that um, positive thinking is great. I think calling things into your life and really getting clear on what you want is great. But when you hear me talking about affirmations and things like that, you also hear me talking about subconscious belief systems. And so... I would encourage you to do that shadow work and to look on your yeah. beliefs about these things and to take a deeper dive. And, and if you want to DM me on Instagram, I'd be happy to like talk about your situation more. But um, 
you know, I just want to reaffirm for you that what you're experiencing isn't your fault. It's not from a lack of trying or from, from not doing it correctly, right? Like as much as we are individuals who can change the trajectory of our lives, we're also a part of a collective. And right now that collective mm-hmm. is really crumbling. And it's heartbreaking that as it's crumbling, we're mm-hmm. becoming almost more individualistic and not caring more about the collective. But that's what's happening right now. Right. Yeah. And it should, that's, you would think it would be the complete opposite. And, yeah. And it should be. And yeah. what I'm saying to For you doesn't like make that, it that's right. That's we think, but... Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't make it right. And it doesn't make it okay. And Mm -hmm. like I said, my heart just breaks for you. And um, please do reach out to me. Because I'm very interested in like shadow work. I really have not done that much. So I've actually been trying to. um, I've wanted to educate myself more on it. So well, I definitely will be doing reach out to me and um, maybe we can work something out where um, I give you access to a year of the Life Reset course for free. I'd be happy to do that, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I have been interested in that course forever, but Mm. obviously... Yeah. Oh my I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that for you, sweetheart. And, and again, um, just sending so much love to you and to your I'm children. Oh, and please do, please do reach out. Okay. I will. All right. I hope you have a good rest of your day, Marissa. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. You too. Okay, Bob. Hi. Hey, hey. Bob, it's, it's me. <laughs> the first question came in hot. Um, well, she did. You hear the whole thing? She's she's being evicted. She has two daughters and a uh, husband, and they just got served eviction notice by a constable two weeks ago. And yeah. she's like, "I'm really trying to like attract money into my life and doing the law of attraction, which you know I'm a huge fan of, and I do believe that we can shift our vibration and call things into our lives. But it's like, honey." This ain't you. It's not you not being determined. It's an entire system that is fucking putting this opposite pressure on so many people right now and just fucking everybody over. I'm so, I'm, it makes me so mad what is happening right now in this country. It's just heartbreaking. Well, it's the, it's the extreme tribalism that Trump created, but now it seems like it's just here to stay. I yeah. just can't see it. Everybody, everybody wants to give relief to her and her family, but nobody wants to put their name on it. Yeah, it's so fucked. <laughs> Welcome to America. But I was just talking to somebody in London. London shut down for a month. I don't know if you guys followed this. Then it opened up for a week. Now it shut down again today. Like there's tens of thousands, tens of millions of people out of work again mm-hmm. at, at Christmas. Yeah, it's I mean, but are nuts. they are they it's sending checks? I mean, they have a much better system than ours. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so does like, you know, New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking, fucking America, man. America. Um, so let's so, dive, let's dive into some of these questions. The first one, the first one's for Bob. It's more of an opinion than um, anything, because I know you have really strong opinions about this. 
Someone uh, messaged me off off of the uh, thread and goes, I'm a substance abuse counselor, but with no experience in drugs. Love my job. Love my clients. I have empathy. I still feel like I'm lacking at times to get it. Any advice? You think? (laughs) (laughs) So... So one of the things that's so mysterious, I actually uh, was doing an interview earlier about about addiction and people that are on the outside of it, it's just, they can't ever understand it, mm. right? And and even I was on the inside of it and so were you and so was Evan and I still sometimes don't understand it. It's yeah. such a puzzling problem, right? That makes no literal sense right so the example being because i was talking to a friend of mine that i'm gonna have 25 years in a in a month and a half and this friend of mine's gonna have 20 years in a month and a half we're about the same birthday and i'm gonna have 10 years in about a month and a half there you go so and and well you watch what happens between 10 and 20 there's only just he he reached out to me because it's only just me and him and Frenchie mm. from that original group that are still sober. Yeah. And you're talking about AA gurus and mm-hmm. talking about people that dedicated their lives to helping others and did all their amends and bragged about it for fucking years. And then just all of a sudden, just like, no, nah, I don't think I'm in this anymore. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. What? You dedicated your life to, it's like almost becoming a Mormon and then disavowing the church. It's crazy, right? What, what sobriety and what it means and, and why people go so far with drugs. And nowadays, you know, in my day, it was like, you know, John Pachante, Kurt Cobain, me, Perry Farrell, Anthony, those are like the extreme versions of drug addiction. And I believe that we would be just like average users right now compared to the entire millennial generation Bob, of drugs. I think about that all the fucking time. It's I'm crazy. like, I would be, I would be nothing compared to these people. <laughs> it's wild. And like, I, and I was a, what I thought was a fucking bad junkie. And yeah, it's like nothing. It's nothing. Now. It's nothing no. com- compared to, you know, you got kids taken you know, buying uh, uh, two grams of fentanyl, uh, pure fentanyl, and then cutting it themselves. I've heard a story about that mm-hmm. a couple months ago. I'm like, do you want to die? A, it's pretty good forethought. But B, like, do you want to die? Well, I've heard they're not even cutting it. They're seeking pure fentanyl. Pure fentanyl, and then just what, doing it? Like, yeah. how, would, how much would you do, a match head? Like, not no, even. Like, no. Not even a match head. A pinpoint. Okay, but you guys are treatment owners. Do you hire people who don't um, have a past history? Of I was really, I was really against it years ago, and I just started thinking the the addicts are so different than traditional addicts that chemical dependency counselors were designed for, mm. right? And the society is so different. Like you used to walk into your first group at Exodus Rehab and in Marina del Rey, and the first thing they would say, if you like said anything in the group, well, you know, I think that I'm really motivated this time. It's totally different. They would just go, how? What? You know, the, the you would be confronted by the staff and the peers. How? How is it different? List three ways that it's different. You don't know shit. This is the same thing you said last time you were here. You're full of shit. That was actually what was said to me in a group. 
Nowadays, no, that, that's not said, Evan, anywhere in treatment in America, is it? No. Well, no, uh, no if way. you're in a teen behavioral mod program, say. like my guest last week, <laughs> oh, holy shit, the horror stories from those places. They do it Fucking to, insane. They do it to children and they do it to low-income people still. Right. Mm. But, so the, but they don't do it because it's not effective, I think. It's not just the political correctness of the culture. They found that people won't stay in treatment. They'll just cry and get up out of group and leave the treatment center and go kill themselves. And what they also you can't found- treat people like that that are nowadays that are so fragile. So I do believe non-addicts have a place in the treatment process nowadays. But I think in identifying and understanding addiction, you always need someone like me or Evan or Harold Owens or somebody that really knows what's up to wise up this therapist that's that's calling saying or left a message saying, you know, I don't really know um, if I have everything it takes. So as long as you've got a Bob around or an Evan around or a a Jody around to help you understand it, you're going to be cool. It's a good team a non-addict addict team. And I think as long as you treat people kindly, like because the disqualifying, the disqualifying behavior is that kind of unnecessary cruelty, which they've proven actually doesn't work. And what they found is so a lot of the programs like Exodus back in the day impact, I mean, a lot of great programs too, but were, were um, purposefully designed on this therapeutic community model. And, what they found though is even places that weren't based on that model, it wasn't the program. It was the staff who believed that the clients needed to be punished where mm. a lot of that punishment comes from. But don't you think you couldn't punish people right now though? The place would be empty by Friday. Right. Well, it becomes so, very, it becomes very subtle and it becomes that condescension. That, well, that, yeah, that's yeah. even, yeah, that's the shadows, yeah. the shadow part of treatment, yeah. which mm. is it almost is just a con to make money and nobody's really doing, accomplishing anything. And almost just I think out, that an outlet to treat people and, 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 like uh, shit. Yeah. Right. So it's that fine line of how to confront, but have, but have it be playful and amiable. Exactly. Which so I'm telling you, they, they did do it like, well, Bob, like Gloria Scott said to me many a time, Bob, you are so full of shit, but I love you. Yeah. That's a great way of doing it, Perfect. actually, by the way. Yeah. And so my advice to you, the, the person who had the question, Hannah, would be, you know, check your ego out the door. Don't pretend you know everything. Seek the advice of the other people you're working with who do have a history of addiction and just be as empathetic and kind and loving as you possibly can be. That's really right. it. And assume that the are, are people working in teams still? I think teamwork is really critical to a good drug treatment center. And I, I always wonder about that, that I think there's the teamwork where we're all like, in a room on Wednesdays to have a team meeting, Mm -hmm. but are we really communicating with our peers at the rehab center and like having this communal approach to addiction? And sometimes I think the insurance way of billing and, and scrutinizing everything and mechanizing everything kind of, it almost makes it impossible to have that guy team thing where you got this like traditionally the psychologists at Los Encinas, where I worked for a decade, they weren't sober people. Um, mm. But the counselors, the chemical dependency counselors were, one of the doctors was, the other doctor was not, the other doctor who was not was Dr. Drupinski. 
Some of the nurses were recovering addicts, some weren't. And so you had this perfect kind of combo of, of respect and, you know, of, of kind of helping one another understand. Like a lot of the social workers and psychologists helped me understand the psych component to addiction that I didn't know much about, right? Yeah. And so when you work together, so I just think this person shouldn't be ashamed they don't know or feel like they should know. You can't know what you don't know. You can't have experienced what you can't, you didn't experience. Mm. So talk to somebody that has. And here's the other thing, that somebody that has needs to humble themselves a little bit also and say, what can I learn from this social worker who's yeah. not an addict and working in a treatment center? So that everybody's kind of working together and learning together and becoming this finely tuned machine. That's what we eventually had at Los Encinas. When you look at the team that was there, it was a combination of non-addicts and addicts, right? Mm -hmm. Even our UR person was a recovering addict. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's kind of, it was kind of this hodgepodge and it, and it all worked together because we respected one another. And nowadays there's another component of it and you see it more than I do. It's all about what education you have, like what your certification or licensure is. That really never played into it when I was working. I didn't even know that a social worker, how about this, Evan? When I was a drug counselor, I didn't even know that a social worker was above me. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Because it just didn't come into play. Like I'm the KDAC guy. She's the social worker. I didn't think like she's way above me. She's way more important to the insurance company than me. And I'm actually nothing. And she's everything. That's a modern treatment evolution, right? Where the people that, that make you all the money because of their signatures in the chart, that those people are more important than the techs and the counselors. That's a new modern thing in the last 10 years, since Obamacare, since the Parity Act. Well, and I think everyone's so afraid as the drug problem, the overdose epidemic uh, grows that, you know, we need to get more evidence based that these aren't real programs because they're being run by peers or they're being run on a 12 step model. So it's, but it's, it's, it's an old habit of trying to medicalize and kind of justify and to be able to find some kind of um, magic bullet, you know, suboxone or whatever it might be. But it's always been a medicalization and a professionalization of a problem that I think is so weird. Even Marissa, who called in, she goes, I think this might be off off topic. I don't think when it comes to addiction, anything is off topic. It's all connected. Yeah, no. it's, a broader, it's a broader cultural problem. Which leads well, me to my second question for you, Bob, that someone put since yeah. you were talking about loss and seamness in your history. Someone wants to know why um, why we can't have celebrity rehab anymore. <laughs> well, I you know, I think about that a lot. The celebrity component of it, which is what made it desirable to the network, mm -hmm. was the kind of downfall of it. I think because originally it was just pitched as a, a rehab show. It wasn't about celebrities. And then VH1 said, we'll do it if you have all celebrities on it. So it kind of was a thing of that time of surreal life and the beginnings of the housewives shows and all that. And, and so it just became a part of that celebrity TMZ culture, which I always found repulsive kind of, but I mm -hmm. do like, the celebrities like they were friends of mine a lot of them but the voyeuristic thing that that, that it became like that people just want to see 
celebrities get their up and comings or, you know what I mean? There was that kind of dark side of it that I don't think now nowadays networks like that sort of thing. Listen, Bob, yeah. myself and Evan have pitched so many fucking shows over the last 10 years of working together. It's just, it probably ain't happening, guys. We've tried. Yeah. <laughs> we. It's not from a lack of trying. Um, well, what killed it was doing it with normal people. Nobody watched it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we did try to do what we thought would be interesting. And like, really, literally, this is America, Evan. So even when Celebrity Rehab was like in the fifth season and, and VH1 sort of thought, oh, it's starting to lose its numbers and all that kind of stuff, that television jargon. We still had like 1.2 ratings, right? Which are pretty good, especially nowadays after streaming. I mean, Anderson Cooper doesn't have a 1.2, right? Neither, I think maybe Hannity does. But like people you think are superstar leaders of the culture don't have the numbers that Celebrity Rehab did. But but it was thought to be a failure because it was hitting twos and 1.9s in the first two or, two, two or three seasons. So it started to tail and... Then we thought, oh, well, we'll just put normal people on it. Maybe that'll interest people. Maybe, you know, it'll spark it more interest or it'll go back up. It literally went to zero. <laughs> I feel like it would actually be better now, though, because everyone's doing these cele- these um Big Brother shows and like the- these like yeah, yeah, average yeah. Joe kind of shows now. But... Yeah, I don't know. The next question came from Alexandra and she said, oh, I would love to know more about weed addiction and quitting when you don't have the life is totally unmanageable feeling. This is interesting because a couple of people have actually reached out to me and have been like, you know, I'm addicted to to weed, which is not something that I'm used to, to hearing. I know it's possible. Um, and most of the times they are quite level-headed and they're saying to me, you know, life, it's not that it's that bad right now. It's just that I'm, I'm noticing that this thing has become unmanageable. I've tried to, to, um, quit a couple of times. It's not maybe affecting my area of work or whatever it might be, but, but I'm noticing that I can't stop. What do you think? Well, here's the thing we, marijuana addiction i have several friends have been smoking weed for 40 years i'm sure you guys do too not 40 years for you alexis but evan evan you know people that have been smoking, smoking weed their whole life for sure now they're not that they it definitely has a kind of effect on their their like motivation in life and their personality they kind of just become mm-hmm. kind of you know what i mean so i just think you know, at the worst, you're just kind of boring and you play video games or whatever. You're not going to die. You go to work. You, it's, you know, it's not the worst addiction to have. But I, the young people that are claiming to have it, which is what I've come up against the last three years, I think they're the great unwashed of non-functioning generation. I agree. And, and so they're, then they point at the marijuana I'm like, no, like, I don't know that the marijuana addiction is causing that you don't know how to have a job and go to it every day, every morning. But Bob, have, I you, ever, have you ever dabbed and waxed? <laughs> Smoking? No, waxing? I have not done that. <laughs> well, have you ever been dabbing? I've shirmed. I've shirmed. No, I understand that it's very powerful, yes. but it still does wear off in four hours. Yeah. I mean, unless you eat a ton of edibles and then you're down for a couple of days, but yeah. Yeah. But I just think that there's, I think a lot of the addiction problem is a 
functioning problem with this generation because I've seen several tens of thousands of millennials get sober and they literally don't know how to change the trash liner in a trash can or make a a washing machine work. Like blame our parents. Fascinating, huh? Blame our parents. I know you love to. I know you love to do that with me, Bob. Blame the parents. No, I love it. I love blaming your mom. (laughs) But but this is another one, though. This is this is somebody we all know. She was twenty years old. I was managing her at a sober living, Mm -hmm. and she, you know, they're writing her up, and her clothes are dirty and all over the place. Everybody's just saying she's a spoiled brat who won't do her clothes. And then I said, come on, I'm going to show you. And I put it in. She literally was embarrassed that she didn't know how a washing machine and dryer worked mm. because her mother and and their maid always did their laundry. She had never done laundry. Evan, right? what are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree. That's it? He, he knows who it is. <laughs> no, I do. But... <laughs> Yeah, but but there's a fine line, guys, because, I mean, I went over to Carmel when we had this high-profile client, and I know that we had been really compassionate with this this client, and that room was fucking disgusting. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's a fine line between, like, let's be compassionate and kind and show them, and then they're just fucking ignoring us, and they're slobs. I have a counterpoint, though. You always do. Go ahead. Say you had tons of money. And you mm-hmm. rented out the presidential suite at the Hyatt. <laughs> you can she have did your it, room however but, you want. But she wasn't. She wasn't paying. And she was sharing a room with somebody else. This and is that, too uh, much that, information. Okay. All right. We're moving uh, on. Well, but anyways, but let me tell you how this was. I did do this. Alexis. <laughs> this was a therapeutic thing. I went in the girl's sober yeah. living bedroom. I picked up the clothes. I said, come on. And I said to the tech, where's the fucking laundry? <laughs> Listen, you're not going to get any, on. you're not going to get <laughs> any <laughs> argument from me that life skills shouldn't be a part of, tr- of treatment. And I'm not, I don't think that the kids should be ashamed. It really is true. Their parents Mm -hmm. have just done for them the whole time. And then, and that, that is on, in all classes, I've seen it, right? It's not just the kids were dealing with the Malibu. I've seen it here in Pomona where I live. Like Mm -hmm. I'm counseling a kid here in Pomona right now that we're, that we're dealing with. And literally I, I walked him to his car one day and I just looked at him and I was like, Dude, why don't you throw this stuff away? He's got all yeah. his bags of all his Jack in the Box and whatever. Yeah. Like, dude, just just pull up next to a trash can and get all this shit out of your car. Counterpoint: A good friend of ours. I'll even say uh, it's Jessica. Fuck. She's a therapist. She's very good she at what is. she does. She's been sober for twenty years. Her car is like a bomb it's went off. Fucking disgusting. It's a mess. She's one of the most talented therapists I ever met. One of the coolest so people. So what I've is ever that met. about with this generation? I don't you're, know. You're, you're, you're this generation, Alexis. Fucking yeah. tell us. I, I, I think that we stop giving a shit. It's kind of like a fuck them. It's our version of fuck the man. You guys had it when you were younger. Hopping trains. Yeah, we have it with being fucking hoarders. I don't know. All right, let's move on to the next question. I'm going to give this one to Evan because I feel like Evan hasn't really talked much and people want to hear from you. What is a healthy boundary for your mom who is an alcoholic, but also bipolar? If you're wanting to go into into the recovery field as a nurse, is it possible? And what are your opinions on it? Are those two separate questions? I guess so. Well, I think for the first one, 
it's so hard because, you know, we could blame our mom and then she's going to blame her mom, her dad, and they're going to blame their parents. I mean, it becomes this endless blame kind of chain that goes yeah, back what to... Yeah, what was that quote I sent you, Evan? I was thinking about oh. this. The blame, blame is not the important thing. It's the, it's the responsibility the Trauma of explains a lot, but it shouldn't excuse so much. Excuse it, right? Mm-hmm. So... Alexis, equal to my blaming of your mother with you, I can't imagine what Evan went through with his mother. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't, I think yours and mine's experience pales by comparison to Evan's. I agree. And, and you have a right to be mad about it, Evan, and you have a right to say, this is what led me to being a drug addict and all this kind of stuff. But you don't have a right to be angry and punish yourself and be, and lash out at other people now or you know what I'm saying? Well, exactly. That's where we have to we have to regain control of ourselves or or our actions. And to just see it, that all of this is like the pain of the world. So her mom is bipolar. She's a well, mess. I She's, was hoping you would start talking about your mother right then, Evan. Okay. The well, I'll, I will talk about my mom. And you know, she had gone through. You know, and she exposed me to things I shouldn't have been exposed to. Where did and, your parents meet? In an outpatient center. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> in an outpatient center for, for mental health and drug addiction problems. So, right. um, but that's to me, that's the locus of all creativity. And it's the eye of the storm where it, it's calm and you can look around and see, wait, they're just all acting out generation after generation, all of this pain. So whenever humans fell into history thousands of years ago and, and doing violence to one another, it kind of has gotten so far out of hand and the, the violence and retribution and blame, really, and grievance. We're, we're living in this. Uh, I read an article last night where, with Trump and everything, we're addicted to grievance. He's really just doing what we all do. And so to be resentful at our parents and wait for some kind of apology that's never going to happen, it's useless and unnecessary and misses the point. We all suffer from varying degrees of the exact same pain and we need to stop it and we need to understand that those experiences like you opened up saying alexis that they deepen our own sense of compassion so that we can you know um we'll hopefully have compassion for our parents yeah stop blaming them but Mm -hmm. most importantly in our work if she's going to be a psychiatric nurse that kind of patience and compassion for people who embody and were born with that pain that we can we can love them Despite that, I guess the question is, are you going to heed the call to action to to break the cycle and to take full responsibility and accountability for your life and the trajectory of it moving forward? If you can't blame, you know, your parents and you know what I mean, then then the only thing that you can do is take responsibility for yourself. And if you really want to work in this field with no ulterior motives. And when I talk about ulterior motives is sometimes people work in these fields because they want to be seen as the hero, the the victor, the better one. It can be ego driven. If you're coming into this empathetically and lovingly with, you know, um, pure intentions, then I think it's great. We just, we, we should but the person shouldn't be tied to outcomes. What, no. what mm. the worst, the worst problem you have, whether you're a severe trauma survivor or just an everyday person or garden variety addict like me is if you're going to be tied to your ability to affect 
health and wellness in your patient population, it's going to kill you. It's going to crush mm -hmm. you. It's going to destroy you. You just got to do what you do, leave the results up to the universe yeah. um, and be happy when it, you were able to have some sort of positive influence on somebody. And, you know, in my case, accept responsibility for maybe some of the things you could have done differently yeah. and try to fine tune it and learn. Right. First client I had that died, I had had a string of really big successes and, yeah. you know, kind of international successes. And everybody's like, oh, he's the guy. He's the one that turned so-and-so around and turned so-and-so around. So I'm just riding high on this thing. Like, I'm a giver. I'm just a giver, Evan. <laughs> I'm a giver. I'm a helper. I'm all these kind of things. Wow. And then a client I talked to literally at five o'clock on a Wednesday after evening, died by late late that next you know early that next morning mm -hmm. and i came into work and i was just like i must have been gray i was just like mm -hmm. a deer in the headlights it had never happened to me like i had taken special interest in this person right and buddy arnold came to my office later that afternoon and he said the wisest stuff he goes he goes it's why we don't take responsibility we don't take uh the glory of the successes because if you do that you got to take responsibility for the failures yeah you're willing to do that mm -hmm. and i was like fuck no <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> so you got to watch out your expectations and how mm -hmm. much you can affect you know change in your clients yeah. i think that's the number one kind of thing i tell people every time whether it's at the Keck school or wherever I talk to people or aloe when I'm talking to new staff or staff is like, we just do what we do and we do what we do because we love it. And we do what we do because it's fun. It's not sitting in a cubicle, bored shitless, trying to make a living. This is fun work. This is interesting work, but it's also very painful, fucked up work. If you think you're the one that cures these people or helps yeah. these people or has this great insight. And we've had a lot of therapists that think they do that. No, haven't we have it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Catherine asks, and this is a piggy tale because someone also asked something similar. But Catherine asks, would love to hear you talk about how to deal with a family member who's not ready to accept that they are an addict because even though everyone else knows it, do we wait? Do we do an intervention? Do interventions even work? Or do we just keep showing up with love and patience? And then following up on that, somebody also asks, how can I help my sibling if he's in too deep and nothing I do or the family has done has worked? He's fallen time and time again. <clears throat> well, I mean, we all three have a lot of experience with yeah, this, we do. both together and separately. But I, I just think each individual case is different, right? Mm -hmm. Tess was different than John Fashante. Um, this person is different. These two people that were just described to me are different, mm -hmm. right? I don't know what in, in too deep is the thing that caught my attention. Me too. The in too deep. What does that fucking I mean? Know. I want to know what that means. Yeah. How deep are they in? Was I in that? <laughs> what is in and does it really, mean? and does it even really fucking matter? Because at the I end of the day, that that's mental, it, I suspect that's mental illness mental, being yeah. misdiagnosed. Yeah. Right. Or, uh, you know, that was interesting, but I, you know, I just think, the I'm one that doesn't believe the family should be that involved in the treatment that, you know, yeah. that, that professionals should be. So, but it should be professionals that the person kind of feels comfortable and familiar with. I really don't like the outsider coming in and a Learjet and scheduling all the 
the, the letters written and confronting like on a TV show intervention. I don't like that. I do like what I call the soft intervention, which was what you guys, the first time we did it with Tess. And it's fun. You just meet them, tell them you love them, you know, make it sure that you're making it known. You know what's up with them. You know, I might not know the details, yeah. but you know what's up with them. And I think that's and, the key, the, the, the professional or the sibling. I, I was dealing with a situation recently, a friend who I was 99.9% certain was using drugs, but wasn't kind of coming out or he was telling me just enough, but he wasn't telling me the whole story. And it, it was kind of... I'm not going to say it was insulting, but what was I doing that I wasn't conveying to him that he could be 100% honest with me? Because only by being 100% honest with me, which might include, hey, I'm doing drugs and I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop, which mm. which would be totally fine with me. But to even have a conversation is impossible if they're not being honest. So how do we create the grounds, again, as a professional or as a sibling or a family member, the grounds, the space for them to be 100% honest. Yeah. What have we done? In the well, I think, I think Alexis is in a better spot than you and me. Every, every time, you know, I come up against one of those people, they always think I want them to go to rehab, right. like I'm rehab guy and, or our rehab. And I don't. And so I sometimes will get the message to them say, you know, understand, like, I'm, I, you know, I don't know whether they, you should go to rehab or not, like get that message to them. Like, if you don't want to go to rehab, there's no point in going to rehab. That's what I get the message. I just did it last Thursday or Friday with a client. Finally, this morning, I got a text message from him saying, you know, I'd be willing to talk with you. Hmm. It took four days by me making sure these friends of his told him, like, I'm not saying you need to go to rehab. Because once you're known as the rehab guy, addicts don't necessarily like rehab evidence. <laughs> <laughs> No, they usually, especially in the beginning, they really don't. And especially if they've had bad experiences, you know what I mean? And I, and I know so many have, I, my suggestion would be this. I agree with Bob that, um, it's important to seek the help of a professional and it's important to seek the help of a professional who, you know, is humble, who is kind, who's been there, who understands and who's going to be completely accepting of the person no matter what. And then I think it's important equally separately for the family to be getting work, you know, doing the work. They need to be in the work, but separately. It isn't about, you know, Evan said to me the other day, and this was so perfect. He said, Alexis, addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. So if you're a loved one of an addict you're a part of what's going on, whether you like it or not. And I think it's important for everybody to start doing their work. And trust me, as you guys start doing your work, your addict will get into recovery. You know what I mean? Like We don't blame the person. We don't blame the parent. Yeah. We blame the relationship. I yeah. think it's the relationships between people that cause addiction. Now, a child isn't you know, in control of relationships, they're born into them, you know, and they might be born into a relationship where there's a well, parent I told you, who's really yeah, hard you, on somebody. But they, they get back to the thing we've always said. So nobody yells at diabetics for eating too much. Nobody yells at people that get cancer who smoked. Nobody yells at anybody who has these kind of behavior comorbidities, it's called. Mm -hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. We know that uh, overeating and eating bad foods leads to diabetes. We know that smoking cigarettes leads to cancer. But yet when somebody gets diabetes or gets cancer, we don't get mad at them and yell at them and tell them they're a bad person. But with addiction, we always do. Even I have. Everybody does it. Addicts are just, you've got uh, whatever it's called, a green light, just blow them away mm-hmm. because they're pieces of shit and they do it to themselves and they don't care about their children. All the negative things you hear about in relation to addicts, you could easily apply that to other comorbidities, but we never do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. I don't even think, I don't even think we do it to the mentally ill as much as we do it to addicts. No. I mean, there's a lot of stigma to mental illness, but it's gotten better over the last 40 years. Addiction is still the same. I can't believe it. What a piece of shit. You know what I mean? It's just crazy how we think about about addiction and addicts and their their disease. It's really amazing. And it was only when, like, wealthy white kids started suffering from it that we even paid any heat other than simply to lock them up. Right. Well, I was so, a part of that original generation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I remember when I when I was going to rehab, there was only three places to go. That weren't jail. Maybe four. There was yeah. Exodus, which was a hospital, Cry Help, which was Behavior Mod, or Hazelden in Minnesota. Betty Ford Center wasn't even up and running when I was starting to go. Hmm. I, I think it had just started, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and now there's one on every street corner in America. <laughs> it's insane. But so, yet we still shame about the disease. We've accepted that it's a disease, but still the people who have that disease are pieces of shit. Mm. Well, and we even go into in our in our book, which will be coming out. Um, I know. I'm, I want to get to that. I want to answer these. I want to okay. answer these last two okay. questions and okay, then we'll go. get into the book. Okay. So co-parenting with a spouse that's not in recovery, um, who is in active addiction, what are, what is your advice? It is, well, I'm an expert at that. It's, <laughs> it's hard even if they aren't addicts. It's yeah. hard even if they are sober. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest things. It's, uh, it's an under-investigated part of our society, right? Mm-hmm. That um, I go through it, Sam, my ex-wife, Chrissy, we all go through it, Right. And I don't think we really want to know how profoundly divorce affects children. I don't think we want to know because I think it affects them profoundly. Hey, it's on the ACEs test. I, if it's on the ACEs test, I agree. If it's good enough for ACEs, then it's, you know, that speaks volumes right there. Yeah, but I mean, when two out of three marriages in America end in divorce, we're really not going to do a real gut check about it, are we? No, and <laughs> and at the same time, I want to say that, you know, I, I've talked about this on my social media before, and I've gotten a lot of backlash for even talking about it. And I'm not saying you should stay in a miserable relationship. I'm not stay, saying you should stay with someone I'm who's saying, abusive. I'm not saying I, I'm Bob's gotten divorced around. a bunch of times. I'm, he He's not, we're not telling you. About. I'm willing to joke around about that. Yeah, every relationship's miserable to a certain extent. So yeah, you should stay in them. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, but Bob, you've been divorced I'll, like three times. Can, yeah, but the only way you can get to a better relationship is to suffer through the the, the awfulness Ugh, of it. I, I'm in the camp that everyone should, we should all be doing our own work and work on ourselves before right. we fucking get married. 
I think that's the only way Evan and I are well, still no, married. Evan no. and I are almost married a decade. We're together a decade. Or you just get in your car in the morning, pretend you're going to work, and just go to the park and sit under a tree all day. <laughs> that's God. what I'm saying. I'm saying relation. I talk to so I've talked to people who have had long term marriages because I'm fascinated by marriage and relationships. Evan and I have been married Olivia, for nine years. That, Olivia Harrison was married to a philandering drug addict for 35 years. They asked her, "How did you do that?" And she said, you just don't get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the man, her husband was George Harrison, the late George yes. Harrison. So, uh, but you do get in all these, sometimes in relationships you get ahead or get behind. And I think the society is telling everyone that message that you just said, Alexis. It told me that. My mom told me that. My mom was married five times. So if my mom's telling me that, if society's telling me that, yeah, if you get to a place in a relationship where you just don't, you're in, you know, whatever it's called, irre- irreconcilable differences, you just divorce. And, and that's like permission to not go and work on the marriage or hope that in a year or two or five years that you'll be in a different place. But because when you talk to people that have been married to 40, for 40 years or 35 years, They'll just say, yeah, we had several times where I didn't think we were going to make it. We had several times where there was betrayal and infidelity and all the things that everybody gets divorced over. The marriages that survive, the people always say, no, we don't walk through the tulips. We are are between the raindrops. We've had problems. We work them out. We care about one another. We put in the work. We do the things that are necessary to, to survive. It's and true. I think that's deep and rich, and that's what I'm trying to do now. But Listen, Evan and I, Evan and I have been there a couple of times. We haven't had infidelity yet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> yet? Um, right. No, you know, Evan and I have a, just recently. Evan and I did a little getaway, and Evan looks at me, and we were having a really rough spot in our marriage. And Evan's at the end of the bed, and I'm crying, and he looks at me, and he goes. Do you want a divorce? I was just curious. He was just curious. <laughs> He's like, do you want to like separate? Like what, a, what is it that, that you want? And I'm like, well, no, I'm hurt and this sucks and we're going through it. But I don't want a divorce because you know what? We said on the beach on our first date that if we got married, this was it. And I think it's interesting because... I feel like normally on a first date, most people, especially men, would run for the fucking hills. But we said if we get married, we are not getting a divorce. I did say my only thing would be if you cheated on me, but I don't even feel that way anymore. Don't get any fucking ideas. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think it's really... I just think it is. It is so much work. And we live in a society where people don't know how to do the work. They don't know how to care for themselves. They don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know how to speak up. They've been fed they so many bullshit to, I'll messages. Give, I'll give you one better. You want to know what the society mainly doesn't know how to do? Hmm. And this is on both sides of the political aisle, on every economic background, uh, white, black, Puerto Rican, everybody just a freaking. We don't know how to forgive. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. That There's going to be no forgiveness of Trump. There's going to be no forgiveness of Pelosi. There's going to be no forgiveness. We are a country now that has no forgiveness. It's That's like that, awful. It's that That's an awful statement. We're addicted to grievance. 
Bob, you're sounding like a Trump supporter to me right now. And it's really making my (laughs) stomach go into knots. Can you provide me with some clarity here? Are you someone who I didn't know this whole time? No, I hate Trump more than anybody. I know you did. I'm just fucking around. But I'm I'm scared of the future because if everybody thinks we're going to defund the police and we're going to, you know, have universal money for everyone and tax the rich 72%, you're fucking wrong. You'll have the Democrats out so fast in 2024, Trump could come back. Oh, I agree with that. But OK, let's go back to co-parenting because she wants to know how to co-parent with her now ex who is in active addiction. Well, guys are worse than girls. Like, that's one thing for sure. Guys are are more likely in our society to abandon their children at, at a seven to one ratio. So think about that. Mm-hmm. So he has a society telling him, yeah, you know, you may be called a deadbeat dad, but just, you know, it's not your problem. So casting him away is probably what he wants. Right. So I would say hold him accountable. Each individual situation is different. I've dealt with a lot of guys that abandon their children. I try to get them to like, no, you need to take responsibility for this. And you really have the society and some of the 12 step world saying, you know, should be better off. Da, 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 da. And I've even like thought about that myself in the, in the eighties, like that your kid will be better off without you. Here's the question that Gloria Scott posed to me. Will you be better off without your yes. child? Yeah. That's what everybody focuses the other way around. It destroyed me knowing that I was a deadbeat dad and, and it destroyed me not seeing my son for two years. It, it was awful. And everybody's focused the other way of like, yeah, you, you know, I don't know what you want or blah, blah, blah. No, you need to, the parents need to be parents. Now, can you say you can't take them overnight if you're going to be high? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those boundaries are important. But, and if you can't stand being around them, that's where you need to bring family member and mm-hmm. community members in. Like say, you know, I had this, uh, my, my, uh, my older son, Elijah's mom said, Hey, you know, he's playing a baseball game and I'm willing to have you come here and watch the game. And then you guys, there's a big park here and you, you can take him and go for a walk and go play on the playground and, and sit at a bench and talk and I'll just wait in the car. That was one of the, like, I was a piece of shit, Alexis. Mm -hmm. And she was willing to do that. That's amazing to me that I had let her down in every way. And she knew that her son needed to see his father. I, think- I could still cry to this day. Hmm. Is, yeah. is, so moms need to think about that. Like think about what's a safe way to have the dad in the, your child's life. What if you can't see them and you can't stand seeing them, get help, but get them connected. Because I believe dads and their uh, uh, who abandon their children die a miserable death every day. Yeah. Hmm. I agree. And it, it was a therapist when, um, in one of the rough patches of my and Evan's relationship that, um, said to me, she goes, Alexis, you need to continue to be a good wife. And I said, well, that's not fair. Cause I feel like he's not being a good husband right now. And she goes, is that really a battle? She goes, that's how you end in divorce and misery. Are you really willing to like draw your swords that much in that relationship in order to be right? And I think the same is true when you're already out of the relationship and the person's in active addiction or not. 
the person's suffering. And I would hope that even though it feels like you shouldn't be the one that has to carry the burden, fucking carry it, carry it for your kid. So that way, God forbid something happens at the end of the day, you can know in your heart and soul that you did everything you could for that kid to have a good relationship with their father. Well, let me tell you an interesting thing that happened with Elvis. You're, you're saying stuff in your guys' lives. So Elvis, about three years ago, it came up and he asked what I felt about Sam. I don't know what it came up about love and whatever. And I said, I love you, mom. What are you talking about, Elvis? And he's like, well, why did you divorce her if you love her? And I said, Elvis, sometimes, you know, it's complicated and people don't understand, uh, you know, wh- I don't understand it really. But I love your mom. I said, I love Flea, but I'm not married to him. I don't have to live with her and be married to her to love her. I care about y- her. I, I don't, you know, I, I, when it's just pure hate and the people don't like each other, that I, I don't understand. But to love someone, I, you know, it takes a year or two and, and you think fondly of that person. You don't want to be married to them. You don't want, you know, that all the, all the stuff that you don't have in common or the, or the, the sensitive parts of the relationship, but you can love someone that you've divorced and Elvis really kind of got that. I, when I said, and I just off the top of my head, I said, I love Flea, but I'm not married to him. I don't have to live with him. Mm-hmm. Right. He really understood that at seven or eight years old. Yeah. And I don't think enough parents are willing to have that conversation with their seven and eight year olds too. I love Sam. I love her, but yeah. I don't want to be married to her. I can't be married to her. It just, we're not compatible, but that doesn't, and neither are me and Flea. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have different views of how things should be done and different values and different everything. And the interesting thing is how we end up marrying people that we have these that you're so incompatible values. with. I know. And th- that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Evan, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say with this woman or anyone who's dealing with co-parenting with a parent who might be using watch for when you might be trying to punish the person like, so they can't see their kid because for no other reason, the kid is safe, which is the number one priority. But but maybe you're going to want to withhold that right to visit to punish the person. And yeah, you can't punish. You wouldn't punish someone if they have cancer. You You wouldn't punish someone if they had diabetes, you wouldn't punish somebody if they were mentally ill and you shouldn't be punishing this person for having an addiction. And and also, so, so the kid's safety is the number one priority, but if you've established that or have some way, there's a family member, a community member there um, supervising the visitation. So the next question is, well, is the, parent on drugs well yeah probably i mean bob i mean or anyone you know were they ever on drugs when they were with their kid i mean my parents were on drugs with me all the fucking time i mean i think my parents were on drugs with me my entire until i got sober interesting thing about drugs and alcohol my parents were drunk every night (laughs) i know either one of them or both of them and then that's every american household and that was totally okay yeah but like being stoned on pot if you really want to get even with your spouse and go to court about it you can get 100% custody of your kid. It's just madness. It's yeah. all vindictiveness. It's all, yeah, what did you say, Evan? The, grievance. The, the grievance. It's grievance. all grievance. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people just try to try to get through divorce the best you can. Try to get through, you know, 
putting on a, a fake front maybe for a while or being mm-hmm. civil. Is that really that awful a thing to just be civil to a person yeah. you were married to and well, then see if it gets to a better place. And if you can't, and if you're too triggered, or if this is bringing up a lot of pain for you, please go and get your own help. Again, we are all responsible for doing our own shadow work, for working with a therapist and for getting through our own stuff. And that's just the truth. Like, you know, at least that's how I feel. And when marriages end, it, it is your responsibility too to do that deep soul soul work and look at why did this not work? What was my part in it? And what do I need to go heal? So that way I don't bring it into another marriage. Well, and I think not blaming people is the shadow work because as long as you're pointing the finger and someone else has the problem, mm-hmm. you're not looking at your own At your own part. stuff. I agree. Well, the other thing, I'm kind of the guy that everybody talks to when they're getting a divorce. And I've been, so I've been through my own two and dozens of others of my friends. And one thing I always say when they start, you know, talking so negatively about the soon to be ex or ex, I just say, dude, you married her. (laughs) Where the fuck is that person? You know, why, why all of a sudden is everything about this person awful and bad? Like you, you went down the aisle with this person. You went to Hawaii and got married on the beach. You fucking went down, like you had yeah. children with this person. And now they're the worst person in the world. That says a lot about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's true. I didn't really mention the shadow self. That's how I talk about the shadow <laughs> self. <laughs> well, and that's fine. We all have our different approaches. Um, so I want to dive into the book because you guys do have a book coming out this year. It will be January when this goes it live. Spring. Um, so you you have a book coming out. We're shooting for the spring. Evan, give us a synopsis about the book and about why it's so important for everyone to read it. Well, we went way out on a ledge and, you know, Bob and I might have slightly different thoughts about this, but he let me kind of, you know, as a joint sort of Evan did publication. 75% well, of that. Come you, on. You inspired, you inspired me, me 100%. sparking a match and him burning down the forest. <laughs> <laughs> so we took this to its... Logical conclusion. And, and so in the history of, of addiction, and we alluded to this before, you know, we used to just sort of lock everyone up and, and this was a moral failing. And, and, and then somewhere around, you know, the early 1900s, with a lot of help from AA, this became kind of a public health. It became a medical problem. And we adopted what we now know as the disease model, um, which is certainly an improvement. You know, we so we have drug courts, and you know we can send people to treatment instead of to jail. That's that's a hundred percent improvement. Well, what we're saying is, and this is kind of going out on a on a on a ledge on a limb rather, is um, what if that even in its own way is a kind of a a sinister but if uh, subtle and polite way to marginalize addicted people and to kind of put them into this box where we get to, again, as a, as a culture point to them and say, well, they're the sick ones. They have a problem. And now too, by the way, only doctors can talk about this problem addiction. So we've created a box. We've put all of our, you know, we used to have scapegoats, literally a goat who we would put all of the villages sins on and send them out into the desert. And now we're good. We're clean. Well, we do this with addicts and we put them into this instead of casting them out into the desert, we might send them to jail. We might send them to treatment. We, 
kick them out of our houses. We, we get rid of them. I mean, they're, they're wretches and, and then we're clean. We're, we're good. Well, then you put them in the box, then you lock the door when you say only doctors can talk about it. And so to me, that's a, that's a huge problem. And so what we're trying to do is open that door, find out who these people are, who they've been us, who we've been historically, what roles we've played in this kind of history of the medicalization of both mental health and addiction problems, which obviously go hand in hand. And although there are absolutely health problems, I mean, a an, an abscess is a real medical problem that needs medical attention. You know, at your injection site, it's become infected. It can go to your brain. It can go to your heart. That's a real medical problem. But the problem of addiction is not a medical problem. It's a cultural problem. Yeah. So it, in a nutshell, I just think more and more in my lifetime, I was in abnormality in 1979. I was obviously so different than the norm of our society. I came from a 15-year-old mother whose grandparents adopted me. I was crazy. I had ADHD. They gave me, you know, um, phenobarbital to calm down. I was in all kinds of different schools. I saw a psychiatrist. That, this is at uh, 12, 13. Um, I come from this kind of crazy, chaotic uh, kind of broken family and and alcoholism and mental illness and then so did all my friends and then we all met on Hollywood Boulevard and punk rock was created and we all come from lack of fathers or suicide drugs uh, early childhood pregnancy there's a song called Bastards of Young by the Replacements that was in 1985 it's about Tommy and and Bob Stinson, the guitar player and bass player, the replacements, their mother was like 16 and 18 when she had them. And she was a single mom with two boys in Minneapolis working a hard job. You know what I mean? And so we were all this generation of abnormalities. Fast forward 40 years, that's America. That's America. Everything that was so out of the norm, these broken homes and these broken families and this alcoholism, now it's every family in America. So there's something wrong with America. And you and were the, the seekers. It, you were you were, you were also like reading Kerouac. You were you were seeking for that that there's gotta be something more than this. And that's that urge which we want to kind of um But don't you think the society has become alcoholic? Yeah, 100%. It's sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, it's a sick society. Yeah. yeah. Like just it's it's everywhere you look there's hatred, division, poverty, self-righteousness, anguishness, greed, mm-hmm. sloth. Everywhere you look at the supermarket at Disneyland, you can see the sickness of America in one way or another. Anytime you turn on the news, you can see the sickness and trauma and just, just the, it's just so ugly and, and sad and fucked up. And unnecessary. And, and so addiction is nothing compared to how sick the society has become. It's just an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, people are drug addicts. Why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be when 70% of the society and the wealthiest society in the history of civilization, when 70% of that population doesn't have $400 in their pocket? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Why wouldn't you be when divorce is rampant, two out of three marriages? Why wouldn't you be when you got the pharmaceutical industry with its hands on the throat of the American medical system? Why wouldn't you be when we're in endless wars? Why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be on drugs? So as you can see, we we cannot leave these questions to doctors alone. Dr. Drew, we love him, but he's not going to be able to solve those problems. No. And so can you give the name of the book? Neither is Dr. Fauci. I'll (laughs) come up with it. (laughs) Clearly. Um, Evan, can you tell everyone the name of the book? America is Addiction. I love it. There you go. I love it. That's it. And Evan did an excellent job. He wrote it. I just... (laughs) I just thought it. But you can't, but that's the thing, Bob, is that like when Aloe was birthed back when it was Acadia, we kind of had an idea that we were like onto the right thing, but we... I mean, but we we were concerned. I found our original business plan. It was to have high thread count sheets, to have a view of the water. (laughs) I mean... I might have believed in my, um, in my to private treat, life. To treat addicts right. with decency and respect. We did it by accident. And, and look, at I, this is where I want to give credit to Bob for teaching us and for inspiring mm. this book and for making us into what we were today. That was our business plan. Now, in my private life, I might have felt like, gosh, I really don't have much against addicted people. Well, that was the kernel. That was the seed that Bob identified. He came in and, you know, the first question he asked is, gosh, you know, you guys must have felt lazy, not having many rules and just being kind of cool. And I go, yeah, he goes, don't. That's what makes you special. Build on that. And so our whole business model in that moment changed to what is the power of kindness? What is the power of Mm. kind of not being set up against or above these people, but really with them and to see them as peers and to belong to a community and to feel that sense of belonging and connection. How powerful could that be? And really this book is the uh, four or 500 page explanation about how profound, in fact, those ideas, those simple ideas are. To be kind to people. And I, I'm just, really, I invented it kind of because I don't like it being the enforcer i don't think it helps yeah and it doesn't fit my personality that part of the problems we're going through with the co-households is there's a lot of rules at elvis's mom's house and no rules here and he's struggling so here's what he's struggling with if there's not a rule he doesn't like the understand like you just don't leave your shoes in the in the by the front door where people trip over them just like commonsensical things because we become so accustomed to rules. Our society is so rule oriented that you, we've lost sight of the fact of why the rules exist. The reason why you have a rule, put your shoes by the front door or you get your computer taken away from you is so that you don't leave your shoes. So people trip over them. Mm. Right. And I just have always been like, just be cool to people. Just be thoughtful. Like don't put your shoes in the walkway. So people, because people might trip over them. And as we become a more mechanized and, and medicalized and rules-oriented, both social rules and you know, judicial rules, there's just so many rules. And I thought, addicts don't like rules. You put them in this environment where there's more rules than there's probably ever been in their life. And I realized there's more rules here than, there, than I have in my own life. Why are we superimposing a million rules? When you checked in to cry help, your first assignment was to write the rules. Hmm. There are like 450, you had to handwrite them. 
It's five pages long. It's like 400 rules that you have to write in handwriting so that you understand the rules. You can't talk to girls in the hallway. You can't do this. You can't be upstairs before six o'clock. You can't go here. You can only be in the smoking yeah. area at this time. It's just madness. And it's not working here and it's not working. I mean, we're in a country where we just lock people up. You know what I mean? At an outrageous amount. And and then they're in a place where they literally have no rights and a ton of rules. And when they break those rules and they're put in solitary and, and what happens as a result is that these people come out of jail, not empowered to change their life. That's why we have a recidivism rate of almost 75%, but more and more angry and broken. And so, you know, it's well, just, it's compassion. Break the rules? Think about what they what every other treatment center that I've ever known does. If you break the rules, you get kicked out. You get banished to the wilderness. Yeah. Right. And Evan and I have gone back and forth about it. I think you live by the sword, die by the sword. We decided we wouldn't we wouldn't kick people out who smuggled drugs in. And it's been a hard road with that. Yeah. But how many people have we saved? You know, here's an interesting thing. So we had this client. Sadly, about two years ago, they passed away finally from their horrible, like one of the worst cases of addiction I've ever seen. And Evan will know who I'm talking about in a minute. So when I we established the Yellow House and I was going to run the groups, uh, Jessica was there. It was only Jessica, you, me, and Jared, right? And I said no rules. And this guy didn't wouldn't come out of his room and wouldn't attend group. And I said, let him fucking sit in there. I don't fucking care. Jessica's look on her face was like, then why is he here? And I said, he's obviously here so he can sit in there and pout like a baby and act like a big rock star bullshit. Right? Remember, Evan? Uh-huh. Even you were like, you got to get him to come out of this room. <laughs> he didn't yeah. come out of his room ever, except for to break into the med cabinet. True. <laughs> right? Yeah. Eventually, he came and lived with me in Beachwood and, 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 you know, uh, I established this real relationship with him, but then sadly he passed away like a year and a half ago, right? A year and a half ago. I believe we kept him alive for eight years, not because we didn't have rules that he's dead. So you choose which side of the AA rehab argument you want to be on. Correct, Evan? Correct. And I mean, I believe we kept him alive and somehow nothing really caught on with him and he didn't embrace sobriety. But I believe that being kind to him and being thoughtful with him and wrestling with him and, and kind of allowing him to just sit in his room for 17 straight days, it, it kept him alive because his disease was so profound. Right. When it gave him quality. The of argument life. of the traditional Betty Ford Hazelden was we killed him because we let him sit in his room for 17 days. Yeah. Right, Evan? Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is where I've become and you and I have both become much more open minded about medication assisted treatment and harm reduction. I'm going to go a step. I'm going to see your Suboxone and raise you heroin. Ayahuasca. Right? Well, that too, but they've done heroin maintenance in Vancouver, Vancouver. and in yeah. Europe. And it improves. It's safe. It's improved. It's not without right. any risk, but it's safe. It's um, cut down on all those other related health problems. It's cut down on um, the violence, theft and violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it improves people's quality of life. You know, and this is for people who, you know, I, I think he would have been a great candidate. But because 
our minds are closed to it because I think it's, and you pointed this out early on, it's in the book, but our puritanical roots in America prevent us from ever giving us someone some kind of treatment that might contain an ounce of joy mm. or pleasure. Ooh. Repeat that. That is so profound. Well, because of our puritanical roots in America, we are, you know, somehow bound from ever treating someone in any way that might give them some kind of joy or pleasure. Yeah. You know, the Suboxone is the perfect drug. You pointed this out, Bob, because there's no euphoria. There's there's no euphoria. And that in in, in our mm. in, in our culture there's no place for joy there's no place for purposelessness i used to use the word purpose law oh, they need a purpose they need a purpose i think we're obsessed with purpose and there's a whole side of life abraham maslow pointed this out that is purposelessness it's sitting watching a sunset enjoying your family yeah. all these things just receiving not giving not doing anything well, family is family purpose. Well, it's a purpose, of course, keeping them safe and, and, uh, but it's really just, I'm talking about sitting, watching them, watching your kids play. Yeah. Um, COVID's really solidified that, right? It's really mm -hmm. turned the world upside down on its head. And as this woman at the beginning of our call called in and said she got COVID, lost her job. Now they can't afford their rent. Um, sounds like husband also got COVID. They had two daughters and society would say, oh, you're just not working hard enough. How dare you not have a s savings? How, you know what I mean? We've just got this like real warped sense of, well, here's of purpose. Thing. And it's here's like, we don't actually need to be doing that. That woman should never be worrying. Nobody should be worrying in America about where they're going to sleep at night. Well, let me tell you something that's interesting. Most people don't leave the United States, so they don't know anything else, mm. right? America is by far, when you measure it and poll it and census take it, the most religious country on earth. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But when you look at the society itself, it so lacks the fundamentals yeah. of spiritual life spiritual and principles. teachings of Christ, Amen. Muhammad, Judaism, Moses. Whatever there is just be. nothing... Christian about this nation in how it treats its poor, how it treats its prisoners, how it treats its, 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 its you know, most vulnerable, right? It's mm -hmm. a society that pats itself on the back for giving medical care to its most vulnerable people. Yeah. So it's an unchristian nation that thinks of itself and verbalizes Christianity constantly, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to Sweden, my mom's native, where my grandma was born, Sweden is an agnostic country. It's probably more ag less religious than any other country in, in Scandinavia, right? Sweden. When you look at this society, it's the most Christian-like society on earth. <laughs> it's fucking crazy to me. And exactly, they take care of their poor. Their their elderly are revered for wisdom. Yeah. They're not thrown away in a nursing home to die. Yeah. Well, it just the, shows how the society is so Christian-like, and yet it's an agnostic society. And our society is so, like, I'll just say it: it's like Satan runs this soul <laughs> of this country, and it think, and we think it's Christianity. Someone had to it's say it. It's crazy to me. I'm right? glad it was you. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Evan. What were you going to say? Well, no, I mean, it's just it, it's a statement in itself that we had to write a book that contains some Christian ideas. Bob and I had to write the book about 
Christianity. Two agnostics had to write the book about (laughs) Christianity. Why are we doing this? Well, here's I the agree. Thing. I'm the agnostic with a picture of Jesus and Moses in the living room and a picture of Martin Luther mm. King in my hallway. Amen. And it's so amazing to me. So when I hear these stories about the evictions and Evan, you had sent me an article about the evictions coming in January. I mean, you're talking about 4 million people going to get evicted. Yeah. But yeah. does anybody really care? They don't work hard enough. They, yeah, you're right. They didn't save any money. They didn't, they didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. They're dumb. They're Trumpers, whatever. However you want to marginalize these people, that's how they will be marginalized. Yeah. Whatever echo chamber you're in, that's what you'll hear about those people. Guys, we have right? one more caller. We've actually had a couple of callers, but they've okay. dropped off. We have one more caller. Okay. I want to answer this call. And then I've got to run because I've got a two o'clock. So we got to keep it under five minutes. But let's answer. Hey, can you hear us? Hi, what's your name? Hi. Hi, my name is Teal. Hi, what can we do for you? Hi. Um, So thank you for... I didn't... I'm really surprised that I'm getting an answer. But um, I have been listening to for a while and I've... I want to say thank you. I really appreciate this. And um, yeah, um, so my question is, well, it's kind of hard. I don't really know. Um, My sister has been, um, my younger sister has been going through her heroin addiction and she's in a really abusive relationship as well. It's kind of fueling the addiction too. And my mom and my sisters were going through a hard time dealing with that because we just found out she just went back to her um, abusive ex-boyfriend and she abandoned her son who my mom has custody over. And I don't know, I've, I'm just having a hard time. I don't really know what to do or tell my mom as she's really wrapped up in it. And I don't know how to best... I don't know how to best process it or help her process it because it's really taking over her life. Mm. Bob, I'm going to let you take this one. Well, it's uh, and you're not alone. This is the story of so many tens of thousands of grandmas and grandpas all across the country. And it's so sad. And I'm sorry. Your mom is probably in the state of mind where she's hoping she'll get sober and reject the bad boyfriend and come home and be a mother, right? Is that probably your mom's expect hope and expectation? Yeah. Um, she said a couple of things uh, the past couple of weeks, like we have to start planning for her funeral. Oh, um, wow. We have to right, be prepared yeah. for that. But she still has, I think she still has a hope that she'll right. get better. Um, she's just kind of fatalistic in a lot of her thinking too. No, that's not the worst thing to th- to think of what's possible. Yeah. It's certainly, it's certainly possible, right? So, but I mm-hmm. just don't. I I think you have to like focus on the child, right? So you got to like start right. figuring long term about the kid. Like if your mom can't isn't up for it or can't handle it, is there some family member that's more more equipped to deal with raising a, a little toddler or something? Here's what I always think about families. And I'm a part of a lot of these kinds of families. Like I'm, you know, I would be up for helping if somebody asked me, but I'm not going to volunteer. You know what I mean? 
So it, but right. what, what these grandmas get trapped in, I see it all the time, is thinking that the daughter is going to get sober like on January 14th or something. You know what I mean? Like, and we're just a couple of weeks away from, from, you know, the kid, you know, her game, becoming a mom again and regaining custody. And sadly, I don't see a lot of that. I see that kind of state of mind lingering on for years. And so it's better to say, listen, this is how it's probably going to be. Your mom's at that place to say, she's probably going to die. So is your mom prepared to be a mother for another 15, 20 more years? You know, how old is the, your niece or nephew? Um, he's seven. He's seven. about to be eight okay. in January. So is she ready to be the parent to him for 13 more years? Probably not. You know, I, I know, I know it's hard. I think we kind like, of have to accept it um, or she has to accept it, she said, because we're basically on our own. My mom right. and my sisters and I. Hmm. And so there's no, so, where's your dad? Where's your dad? We don't talk to him because he's, <laughs> I haven't spoken to him in a couple years. I think he's lost in his addiction too. Was he abusive to your mom? No, actually. Oh, good. Not at all. Okay. So he's just kind of a lost soul, right? Yeah. He's emotionally unavailable. <laughs> and, and he's just kind of and, out there. So he just chooses not to have a relationship with his daughter. You see where I'm going with this, right? That this is a long-term problem. I wouldn't plan on her getting sober and getting it back together for three years, let's say. Just pick a random number. So it's mm -hmm. not going to be in 2021. It might be in tw beginning of 2024, she might get herself together. So in the meantime, right. how do we take care of this seven-year-old boy best? What's best for him, right? And... Right. And I think it's really important that he kind of be with somebody who, ex, you know, explains it to him that it's, you know, mom, you know, that because the child recognizes they're probably not, she's not probably not coming back, but they want them to come back. I mean, this is the tragedy of America right here. Evan, are you yeah. seeing this? Yeah. This is happening everywhere. What part of the country do you live? I, I just curious. I live in Montana. Okay, that, that, it's not so much up there, but it's in Ohio, West Virginia, um, Florida, uh, Florida. It's just so you guys yeah. are not alone. Um, yeah, and it's actually it, gotten a lot worse now over the past couple years. I think. Yeah. Is she on meth? meth? Um, she's not on meth. Incred like incredibly, it's bad up here as well, but yeah, especially bad. in rural areas. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would just say that, um, you know, we addicts are really resilient people. And um, mm -hmm. I know that when there's so much heartbreak and when you just feel like there's no, there's not much further deep that we could get, we go there. <laughs> and, um, right. you know, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be giving up hope. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that this is really profound. When we're in our addictions, we feel so terrible about our choices and about who we are. Even if we don't tell you we do, we do. And it's really important. I think that addicts kind of need a lifeline on the other side, somebody who loves them unconditionally, who doesn't shame them, who doesn't give unsolicited advice, 
somebody who they just really feel like they right. can trust. And I don't know how you feel about being that person in your sister's life. But if, if you are, I, you know, at this point, I'm going to call it the, the test model of care, because this is what Bob and I did with Tess is we just sat down and I, I asked her to lunch with zero judgment. I bought her lunch and I just sat there and I mm -hmm. loved on her. I just loved on her. I said, I love you so much. And I'm so sorry for all the times I've, I might've shamed you. And I'm really sorry for, you know, abandoning you when, when you were in your addiction. And I'm sorry for not letting you know that I love you unconditionally. Everybody deserves unconditional love. And I wasn't able to give that to you, but I'm, I'm willing mm -hmm. to do that now. And I'd love to have a relationship with you, whether or, or not you're in recovery. And I think you'll be surprised at her response because chances are that's really what she needs. That's what she's getting from this boyfriend, right? Is she's getting, right. she's kind of getting this like a real unconditional love because he accepts her in, in her addiction probably because he's in his addiction. And so the more people that are right. around her that are providing her with this unconditional love, the more she's going to desire that over the boyfriend. You know, my mom has an amazing group coaching session uh, that she does for free on Tuesday nights. I highly suggest you, your mom and your other sister. I'm, I'm collecting. You have mm -hmm. another sister. Yeah. Get in on that. Mm -hmm. It's at 630 Pacific Standard Time. Um, you can visit her website, AndreaArlington.com and sign up for that. It's like I said, free coaching and my mom is actually incredibly successful at, at using love to get that leverage that's necessary to help somebody get on that path of, of sobriety. I think what Bob is saying is right. Make, make her child mm -hmm. a priority. Make sure, you know, because you want to, what's your goal? Is your goal to break, break the cycle of generational trauma? It sounds like your dad was an alcoholic. Now here's your sister. She's, she's in yeah. her disease. And so the goal, the goal has to be to stop it. Right. And so the way to, to, to do our best to stop it is to protect this child at all costs. And I mean, this is like all hands on deck for that little baby. Because right? what you said about addicts is true, very mm -hmm. resilient. Kids are very Kids are resilient. Very resilient. You look at the example of the Romanian orphans who were left for uh, years crying in their cribs. No one no one picked them up and held them. Mm -hmm. And and all these kids, they followed them for years because it was this kind of fascinating way to learn about you know, the importance, first of all, of connection, but, um, an attachment, but more importantly, maybe what happens when someone doesn't have that, all of them once placed into loving, supportive homes were right. able to recover. And that's what yeah. I was trying to suggest. You don't want to suggest that, but right. the fact is, yeah. um, adoption has become this kind of horrible subject that people don't talk about. And it's a hard decision to make, but I just don't think it's right for a seven-year-old boy to be told, you know, mommy's just sick and she might be back for Christmas. Yeah, like that's horrible. You got to yeah. make a decision about it. Like right. and execute it it's, because yeah, the little boy mm -hmm. is thinking, you know, imagine what it's like thinking is your mom coming for Christmas? Is your mom going to be here for your birthday? Yeah. Somebody needs to say, you know, it doesn't matter whether she is, you've got us. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's really yeah, hard. Fortunately, yeah, my mom does have a history and um, she has her master's in social work. Oh, great. And Good. so she's, she's got her background and just 
really great yeah. to talk to, but when it comes to personal stuff, she just breaks down yeah. over it right. and she can't see outside of herself. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I highly suggest that yeah, family group. Really great suggestion. Sorry. No, 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 that's okay. You know, I really suggest mm-hmm. that family group and um, I'm going to keep you guys in my, in my mm-hmm. thoughts and please know you're not alone. I mean, the vast majority of questions that we answered today, I hope you'll listen to this episode back, um, had a lot mm-hmm. of suggestions and were very similar to what your scenario is. So you certainly are mm-hmm. not alone. And thank you so much for calling in and, and, um, and for being with us today, we Hang really appreciate there. it. Are you near? Are you near Bozeman, yeah. or are you near Billings? I'm Calis. I'm Kalispell, Montana, but they are in Billings. Mm. They're in Billings. You know where Flathead so Lake is. Here with my daughters. Do you know where Flathead Pardon? Lake is? Flathead Lake. Um, Flathead. I'm about 20 minutes from Flathead Lake. I love that place. The most beautiful place on earth. My God, you live in paradise. Yeah, it's really beautiful up here. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. So, I really appreciate it. And Alexis, I <laughs> um, really am so grateful that you have this podcast and this platform. It's mm-hmm. really helped me on my journey. And I've been listening to you and I've shared you with my mother and my sisters. And I'm just so grateful that you've, for all the work that you do. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Awesome. I'm, I'm grateful to have you a part of our community and, um, please feel free to reach out and DM me on Instagram if you need some more support, okay? Okay, thank right. you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you, guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Okay, bye. Bye, you too. All right, you bye. guys. Are we wrapping it up, Alexis? Yeah. Um, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I know everyone's going to have such huge takeaways. If you want to follow us on social media you can on instagram at aloe house if you or a loved one needs support with addiction please visit aloerecovery.com you can follow bob forrest on instagram bob is it still bob is a dad yes i mean i'm gonna get back into it soon i just gotta i gotta get back into it i just uh covid has taken me off there's nothing going on in my life how could you post anything I'm at home. Elvis is on Zoom. I'm going to take the trash out. We might go to Bonds later. Evan, we might go to Bonds later. I love it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I know there are so many big takeaways. And until next time, guys. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. All right, bye. This week's affirmation is in this new year, I am committed to loving me. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 